Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fried Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl, Gina. And on every episode, I always want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. So today on this episode, we are going across the pond, if you will, to Australia. And we're going to talk about Arnold Soderman, a name etched into infamy. In the shadows of history, his sinister deeds unfolded, leaving a haunting legacy that we explore today. Brace yourself as we navigate through the enigma of Sodom's crime, examining the lives forever altered and the echoes of a sinister past that continues to resonate. This is Fried Doe, true crime podcast, and this is The Schoolgirl Strangler, the Arnold Sodom's case. Arnold Soderman was born Arnold Carl Soderman on November 12, 1899 to Carl and Violet Soderman. Carl was an abusive father and eventually he died in a mental hospital. Violet, she suffered bouts of amnesia on a regular basis. All of Arnold's male family members were equally troubled with his grandfather eventually dying also in a mental hospital and his grandfather's brother died in a German asylum. His great-grandfather and his great-grandfather's brother also suffered from mental illness, suggesting long mental problems in his genes. As a child, he also fell from a horse, which couldn't help anymore. Given his background, he entered the Australian Army just to try to forget it. But before training camp even started, his history was discovered and he was sent back home. He was 16 years old. Two years later, he was caught and sent to jail for larceny, and that is theft of personal property. And I can't believe I didn't write down how many years he did. But right after he was released, he was charged with armed robbery. He he shot a station manager, wounding him. He served three years for this, this time to hard labor. He couldn't handle that, so he escaped. They caught him, and they added a year to his sentence. After he got out, he met and married a woman named Bernice. They had a daughter named Joan. She was born in 1928. Despite his drinking, the marriage was good. So on November 9, 1930, after spending most of his day drinking, he told the police that he was properly filled. He abducted 12-year-old Mina Griffin. She was playing at the playground with her two sisters and a friend. Mina was one of 12 children. She had just moved there with her family so her older brother, which was 18 years old, and her father could get work. Soon as her sisters came back without Mina and told the family what happened, her older brother and father ran to the park but couldn't find Mina. They went to the police instantly. He'd been watching them while he was at the bar drinking. To isolate her, he gave the other girls money and told them to go buy some ice cream or candy. He told Mina he had a different errand for her. When asked from her friends what was she going to do, Mina said she had a message. When the girls returned from the store, there was no sign of Mina or the man who gave them the money. Arnold Soderman later told police that when Mina Griffin got hungry, he gave her money to go into the store and buy some fish and chips. 
and then they got on the bus and they rode for a while. After they got off, they walked along the street until he saw an abandoned house and he broke in from the back and he took Mina inside with him. Once inside, he grabbed her by her throat until she stopped moving. Then he stripped her, sexually assaulted her, bounded her hands and gagged her with her own clothes and left her on the bathroom floor and went home to his wife and daughter. Two days later, her body was discovered by two teenage boys. He said, if I had sexual intercourse with that girl, I do not remember. I feel comfortable enough to say that was not sexual intercourse. That was rape. On January 10th, 1931, minutes after midnight, he abducted 16-year-old Adelaide Hazel Wilson. We're going to address her as Hazel. He strangled her to death and her body was also found in the suburbs of Ormond. His signature move was that he gagged and tied their hands behind their back with a portion of their clothing. This was two months after his first murder. Her father, Fred Wilson, was initially a suspect because he had violent tempers and once broken down a door with an axe to get to his wife in an argument. Hazel was afraid of him. The only thing that the family found of Hazel outside of their home was one of her shoes on the sidewalk and tracks of her being drugged. They called the police. Her body was found the next day in a nearby vacant lot. Arnold Soderman, he confessed years later and he told exactly what happened to Hazel. He said he was heavily drinking. He struck up a conversation with Hazel. They went on a walk. As they passed her house, he grabbed her by the throat from behind until she collapsed. He drugged her and then carried her to a nearby lot bound her hands and gagged her with her clothes, left her and went home to his family. He started having anxiety attacks after this, so he stopped drinking for about four years. During that time, the family, the Sodomans, moved to Lingatha, a town in Australia, and Arnold started back drinking. And with that, his urge to kill also returned. So on January 1st, 1935, he took his third victim, Ethel Belshaw, a cheerful girl with blonde braids. She was 12 years old, whom he strangled, then bound at the seaside town of Inverloch. Ethel was intending to buy some ice cream when she disappeared. She went to buy some ice cream with her best friend, Margaret Knight. Ethel got her ice cream first and went outside to wait for Margaret to come out. That's when he snatched Ethel. By the time Margaret got her ice cream and went outside, Ethel was nowhere to be seen. She was found a half mile from the pier the next morning by a camper. She was covered with cuts and bruises with stockings around her neck. A neighbor heard three screams at about 8.15 but thought nothing of it because it was the holiday, but reported it when she heard the news. Here's the tripped out part. Ethel was actually Arnold Soderman's next door neighbor. They didn't know that he had something to do with Ethel's disappearance at the time. He was celebrating the holiday with his family and he broke away. He grabbed Ethel, killed her, and returned back to the family as if nothing happened. He says something just came over him and he just took her by the throat. He then drug her into the bushes and left. 
When the police questioned him on the day of her disappearance because he was her neighbor, he said that he talked to her on that day that she disappeared and she was alive when he last saw her. He actually invited the parents over for tea to calm them down over their daughter's disappearance. A teenage boy was questioned and arrested for giving conflicting statements, but later charges was dropped for lack of evidence after a few days in jail. So on that day of January 1st, 1935, during their picnic at the pier, Maureen Lewis, a family friend of the Sodomans, said that Arnold wanted to take her to get some ice cream, but his wife wouldn't allow him to do it unless he took their daughter, Joan. Maureen said she was happy not to go with Arnold because he gave her goosebumps. Maureen said in 2012, he was just a creep. She said, you just turn around and he'd be standing right behind you. But we didn't know that he was a murderer. He didn't take neither her or Joan to get any ice cream. He just wandered off. And that's when he ran into Ethel Belshaw eating her ice cream. On December 1st, 1935, Arnold Soderman tried to lure Shirley Steele, six years old, to go for a walk with him, but she was too scared that she would get in trouble with her mother by leaving. So she stayed put, even when Soderman offered her a bag of lollipops, but when she refused, he just started focusing on her best friend, June Rushmeyer, the daughter of a co-worker, who asked him for a ride on his bike, Shirley hadn't seen her best friend since that day. Her body was found the following day less than a kilometer, 1.2 miles from her home in Leangatha. The body of six-year-old June Rushmere was found with her hands tied behind her back with a piece of cloth and blood-stained garment pushed down into her mouth. A piece of a torn sock was tied around her neck. She had bruises all over her body. Death was due to suffocation. Her friend Nancy Smith, age 12, said that she was playing with June on the Leangatha's reservation and June just left at 7.15. William Henry Money of Leangatha said that at that same time he saw Sodomy riding his bike in that direction. He said he had a strange look on his face and Sodomy didn't speak and that was out of his character. Another witness, Vincent Desmond Ryan, said between 7.15 and 7.30, he saw a man with a girl on the handlebars of his bicycle, said that the girl fit the build of June, but couldn't say if it was Sodomon or not because he was 80 meters or 90 yards away. On that day, Arnold Sodomon was working on a work crew repairing the world. One of his co-workers jokingly said that they saw Sodomon by the crime scene. Sodomon got very enraged and said that he was not there. And because he answered with such rage and anger, it was out of the character of Arnold Sodomon. They then told the police and the police came and took him alongside and asked him a couple of questions. After that, they took him to the station and 12 hours later, Sodomon confessed. He didn't only confess to six-year-old June Rushmere, he also confessed to 12-year-old Mina Griffith, 16-year-old Hazel Wilson, and 12-year-old Ethel Belshaw. At first, the police were skeptical because it came too fast, but the more he talked, the more they realized that he knew things that the killer would only know. He began his confession by saying, I will be 36 on Thursday, November 12, 1935. I tell this story not with any hopes of reward or any hopes of easing my position, but because the grip of the mania has on me. 
When in this state, thoughts would go through my mind concerning men, women, and children whom I disliked. They were mostly men. I would feel the desire to even it up, not caring what happened to them, but I would shake it off as soon as the liquor wore off. I could reason properly and would wipe it all off. He calmly told police that in great detail about the particular horrific killings of the four girls, which came as a result of his desire to pay back in some way the people he hated. He said he decided to kill June when she asked him for a ride on his bike. After drinking, he said he gave her a ride. Then she got off and he told her she can walk home. He said she ran into the bush and he ran in after her. He caught up with her and grabbed her around her neck and she started screaming. Nah, that don't really sound right. He tells her to get off the bike and walk home and she runs into the bush and he runs. Nah, that don't sound right. She then went limp because he was choking her. He took off her bloomers, panties, or underwear, however you, you know, want to say it, jammed them into her mouth, got back on his bike, and ran off. He wanted to get as far away from that location as possible and give himself an alibi. Her body was found face down, not far from her home in Leagatha, with her belt tied around her mouth and behind her neck. She died of strangulations. Her hands were bound. She was found a day later. In February 1936, at the conclusion of a two-day trial, the jury found him guilty of murder. The government medical officer, Dr. A.J.W. Philpot, his assistant, Dr. R.T. Allen, and the psychiatrist, Dr. Reginald Ellery, all gave evidence that Sodomy was suffering from a disorder of the mind which created an obsessional impulse of such power that under the influence of alcohol, he was no longer responsible for his behavior. Since Sodomon was intoxicated on all four occasions, the doctor concluded that he was insane at the time of all of the murders. Their conclusion was reinforced not only by Sodomon's repetitive behavior, but also by his family's medical history. Judge Charles Gavin Duffy then sentenced Arnold Sodomon to death. The jury, in making their decision, rejected Sodomon's defense of insanity. Ooh, that was a close one. I thought it was going to come out a different way. I was nervous. I was nervous. Arnold Sodomon did not want to reprieve because of the fear that had he lived, he may commit more murders. He spent a good deal of his time playing droughts with Edward Cornelius, who was sentenced to death for the murder of Reverend Cecil in Fitzroy in November the previous year. Arnold himself was hung and buried in Pentridge Prison Cemetery in Colbert on June 1st, 1936. An autopsy disclosed that he was suffering from leptomeningitis, a degenerative disease which could cause serious congestion of the brain when aggravated by alcohol. The Arnold Sodomy case evokes a profound sense of sorrow and tragedy. The loss of all four girls and the subsequent conviction of Arnold Sodomy serves as a poignant reminder of the devastating impact such crimes have on individuals and communities. In reflection on this case, we are compelled to seek justice for the innocent and foster the collective community to protect the vulnerable among us. May the memories of Mina Griffin, Hazel Wilson, Ethel Belshaw, and June Rushmere inspire continued efforts to prevent and address such heartbreaking incidents in a pursuit of a safer and more compassionate society.
On this week's Missing Segment, we're featuring Yasmin Shahida. She's 15, female, black hair, brown eyes, 5'1", 140 pounds. Yasmin was last seen in Cleveland, Ohio on May 31st. 2023. If anyone has any information regarding the whereabouts of Yasmin, please contact the Special Victims Unit at 614-525-3555 or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 614-645-4749 or visit www.p3tips.com. Let's help bring Yasmin home to her family. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. If you have any insight on this case or any other case that I've covered, or if you have any case suggestions, you can stay connected with the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or you can just go into the show notes, leave a voicemail, and that voicemail might show up on the next episode if you want it to. Also, before you go, please help support the podcast by sharing it with your friends, sharing it on social media, or you can just simply leave a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to me on right now. That helps the podcast grow. If this is your first time listening, I want to thank you and remind you don't go before you hit that subscribe button and that bell so you'll get every episode when it's released. So until next time, Donuts, please stay safe, stay vigilant, and always, always, always trust your instincts.